Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. So as I said, we are in Proverbs. Now uh, we are in verse 1 of chapter 27, which begins this way. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring familiar theme, isn't it? It's a familiar proverb. It's certainly a familiar theme, this idea of not boasting about tomorrow because you don't even, quite frankly, you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. And you don't know what tomorrow is necessarily going to hold. And so how can you boast about it as if you do know? There's a uh, relatively well-known parable in the New Testament that Jesus told. It became known as the parable of the rich fool. Now, there's also the parable of the rich young ruler. That's not the one I'm referring to. This is the parable of the rich fool. And we learn about it in Luke chapter 12. And Jesus tells us the purpose of the parable before he gets into the parable. It says this in Luke 12:15. Jesus said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is the account, you may recall, of two brothers that are arguing amongst themselves as to who should get the inheritance and how much of it and so on and so forth. And so Jesus then tells this parable about covetousness. Now here's the parable. I'm going to read it to you. It's about five verses in Luke 12. It says this, Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they then be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, again, the the point of it is to address the issue of covetousness. But we also see this idea of boasting about tomorrow as if you know what tomorrow is going to hold. And you see this guy here, this fellow had it all planned out. I'm going to tear down my old barns. I'm going to build up bigger barns. I'm going to store up. I've done the math. I know what day I'll have enough uh, resources, money, or whatever you want to do. And then I'm just going to eat. I'm going to drink. And I'm going to be merry. Nowhere in this man's thinking do you see the Lord's will. Nowhere have I sought the Lord. And the Lord said, this is what you need to do or these sorts of things. It's all about storing up ample goods so he can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And again, the only problem with his plan is that it was not God's plan. As we see in verse 20 there, where God actually calls him this. I don't know if we're allowed to call people this, but God does. And he calls this man a fool. Now, it's one thing to say, well, that was very foolish. You're acting foolish. It's another thing to say fool to the guy. And that's what the Lord does, at least in this parable. He says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. You had these grand plans. This very night your soul is required of you. And we think we have it all figured out. We have it organized just perfectly to come about, but reality is none of us really know what tomorrow will bring. Now, we can anticipate, and we can make educated guesses about tomorrow, and we can plan, and we can create budgets, and we can establish retirement accounts, and those sorts of things, but the reality is we don't really know what tomorrow holds. And so then, to walk in wisdom is to live our life in submission to the will and the purpose of God. And this man's thinking and the words that he said doesn't demonstrate that at all. 
There's no mention of the plan of God, let alone submission to the plan of God. Now, I don't want us to take this verse and assume or draw the conclusion that it forbids us for preparing for tomorrow. But it does forbid us from presuming upon tomorrow. And I do think there's a big difference. This doesn't prevent us from preparing for tomorrow, but it does prevent us from presuming upon tomorrow. Because none of us are assured the continuance of our lives until tomorrow, let alone our specific plans and purposes and schemes that we can come up with. And so as I said, this proverb, 27.1, it's a familiar theme in the scriptures. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that not only do we see Jesus giving a parable about it, but we see the writers of the epistles, those teachers of those epistles, that also present to us commentary on this idea of boasting about tomorrow. Maybe it came to mind when I read the proverb. But James chapter 4, another well-known scripture passage says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and we will spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Have I said that enough? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. Once more, please, there is nothing wrong with planning ahead, creating some goals, putting together a life plan, saving for the future, and making preparation for retirement. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, I would suggest if you're not doing those things, I think you're acting presumptuously and that you're exercising a lack of wisdom for not doing those things in particular. But what we see from a proverb like this one here in chapter 27, and then from the two places in Luke and in the book of James, is that we need to hold those plans very lightly. Let me even go back. First, we need to form those plans very carefully, prayerfully. And then we need to hold those plans very lightly because the Lord may decide to intervene into the midst of those plans. And that's why James speaks of this idea of saying, if the Lord wills. And that's more than just mouthing the words. As long as you just say, if the Lord wills, then here's what I got planned. You know what I mean? No, it's more than just mouthing the words, if the Lord wills, but it's bringing your will into submission to his will. So it becomes something like this, Lord, I assume I'll be here tomorrow, and then I'll get up and I'll go to the same job tomorrow that I went to today, but whatever you have for me, I want you to use me. You see, it's bringing your will into submission to his will. You're still making your plans and doing what you need to do, but you're bringing your will into submission to his will. And that's the attitude of a person that has brought their life and their plans into submission to God and his plans. And as followers of Jesus, that's the attitude we are supposed to be having. And so if you look at your life and you're like, you know, that's not really my attitude. Well, lordship of Jesus Christ. That's something you want to bring to the Lord and say, Lord, you've got to change my attitude. If that's the attitude you want created in me, you've got to begin changing my attitude as I continue to submit myself to you. Okay? A key idea there about not boasting about tomorrow, but bringing your life into submission to the will of the Lord. Now, I think there's a second key point that we could make, a second sermon idea that we can take from Proverbs chapter 27.1, and that is this. Don't put off until tomorrow those things that you should be accomplishing today. 
Somebody said that, like Ben Franklin or something, probably said that at some point in time. Because again, you don't even know if you're going to be around tomorrow. And so, if the Lord is telling you to mend a relationship, don't wait until tomorrow to to take steps to do that. Do it today, because you don't know if you'll be around even tomorrow. If the Lord is telling you to communicate the gospel to someone, then you have to do that today. You can't put it off. If the Lord has ministered to your heart to take a step of faith, don't put off taking that step of faith until a more convenient time. Take the step of faith today. And perhaps most importantly for those that are with us, if the Lord's been ministering to the deep places of your heart and you know you need to confess your sins and invite Christ into your life as Savior, don't put it off until a more opportune time because you don't even know if you will have a more opportune time. Today is the day of salvation. None of us know what, tomorrow's ho- what tomorrow holds, I should say. And I would throw this out there. I think there's five key reasons why, if you're thinking about getting saved, you should get saved today. Number one is every day given to sin is a day you've wasted in your life. You were created to know God and to walk with him. And every day you put off getting right in your relationship with God is a day that you have wasted. In addition, every day that you live in sin is another day you are adding to the growing number of things that you will never be able to undo. And how many of us that got saved a little bit later in life, we look back and we say to ourselves, if only I had gotten saved earlier, I could have saved myself a lot of difficulties that I got myself involved in. A third reason is this, because the conviction of sin you may be experiencing right now, that conviction of sin may pass and your heart may harden over so that you never are convicted about sin again. And you will never get saved if you're never convicted of your sin. We see examples of it in the scripture where a person's heart has hardened over and they were never able to respond. Don't allow your heart to be hardened over. A fourth reason is your life may come to an end this day or someday before you've had a chance to receive Christ. Receive him today. And then finally, we know this, the blessed hope for believers. Jesus could return at any moment for his church, and you will have missed it. And so don't put off until tomorrow what you need to do today, whether that's mending a relationship, starting a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, taking a step of faith, what have you. Wisdom would dictate, respond today to how the Lord might be leading. Amen, friends? All right, now verse 2 It says this, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. I referenced this verse a little while ago with a similar proverb in one of the previous chapters. I always find it interesting to note that those who truly have reason to boast rarely do. And those who do not have reason to boast or do not have reason to receive the praise of others can help stop themselves from trying to... uh, to solicit that praise from other people. Those who have reason to boast rarely do, where those who don't have reason to boast always seem to. Now, there are instances that may occur where others may rise up and and want to congratulate you. They might want to acknowledge you, so to speak, boast about you. And Solomon's not necessarily forbidding those things. He's not saying, no, don't boast about me or anything like that that we should prevent that necessarily. But what he is saying is, let another person praise you and not yourself. So if other people want to give you a claim, well, that's fine. You just go on humbly looking to the Lord to keep you 
in meekness and in humility because you know the truth about yourself, don't you? You know that it was by accident you stumbled into that successful thing and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was successful in that. And everybody is praising you for your foresight and your insight. And you're like, if they only knew or whatever. You just keep on moving forward humbly. Even if it is due to your hard work and your diligence, you know that any abilities that you have have been given to you by the Lord. What prevented you from being born into a circumstance where you didn't have those opportunities? What prevented you from being born with a condition that would have prevented you those particular opportunities? The Lord is the one that intervened in all of those things and put you in the place that you are to have that success. And now you're going to claim it as your own? Why would you do that? Particularly if you're a child of God who knows that truth. And so don't praise yourself. Let another praise you. Boasting in your own attainments and abilities, let's all just say what it really is. It's obnoxious, isn't it? And after a while, you start rooting for that person to fail because you're tired of them boasting about how great they are. And I'm not the only one that does it. I know you people. You all, we all do it. You know, and they're like, oh, that's too bad that you failed. You know, or whatever it may be. There is one that you should be performing to impress. And you're never going to match his standard in the sense of you're never going to be as great as he is. And that's the Lord Jesus. And so honor him. If he's pleased, that should be satisfactory to you. You don't have to run around and get everybody else's pat on the back either. Okay, verse 3. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. So it talks about a stone, it talks about sand, but the real point of this is provoking a fool, a fool's provocation. And a fool's provocation, this is a person that is given to wrath. That's what Solomon is getting out here and provoking such a person, a person that's given to wrath and you going over and poking that person, excuse me, (coughs) in the eye or something like that. And then when they freak out on you, what did they expect? What did you expect they were going to do? This is a person with ungoverned passion. They can't control themselves. And Solomon's word is just simply this, stay out of the way of such people. Because this fool uh, that's given to being provoked can't be reasoned with. They can't be convinced of their folly. And any attempts to do so are only going to cause a heavier burden for you to bear. And so Solomon's direction is this. Your best decision when dealing with such a person is to leave that person to themselves rather than to strive with them when they're, un, when they're incapable of exercising sound judgment. At the very best is to let them calm down so hopefully they'll be able to think more clearly. And so don't go poke a fool who's easily provoked in the eye. It's not going to do you any good. And it's only going to cause you more trouble. Now, there's another important point here that has to do with those two phrases there. A stone is heavy and sand is wavy. He makes a, um, weighty, I should say. He makes a comparison between a heavy stone and a weighty bag of sand, essentially, is what he is getting at. And he says they're, basically, they're synonyms, one with the other. Now, I find that interesting because you would never consider synonymous one grain of sand with one heavy stone. Yet, when you gather up those grains of sand, you allow them to accumulate and collect them together, then they become just as heavy as that particular stone. And so now you have two things that are equal. 
because you've allowed that small little grain of sand to accumulate and become equal with that stone. Alexander McLaren, he said this, you may as well be crushed under a sand hill as under a mountain of marble. It matters not which. The accumulated weight of the one is as great as that of the other. And that's the key idea there, the accumulated weight of the one. To say it another way, small seeds grow to be great trees. And the point that I'm getting at here is the little things add up. And it's not the big things that we do that really make us to be the men and women that we are to become. It's the small things we do each day that shape who each of us are going to be. And so whether those things be good or evil, it's those little things that will fashion us to be the people that we are becoming. And so let me ask you, does it really matter if you read a chapter or two in your Bible tomorrow morning? Does that really matter? It's going to revolutionize your life if you miss tomorrow. Some of you are real spiritual people every day. Got to do it. The reality is if you miss tomorrow, your whole life's not going to fall apart. But if you miss Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and then Friday, and then you keep doing that and you establish that pattern in your life, that pattern's going to build up and your life is going to be developed as a person that does not get into the word of God and feed on the word of God for your soul. That adds up. The one thing, the one grade of sand, not too heavy. Does that small sin really mean you're now embarking on a life of crime and destruction? Probably not. But small sins, by reason of their numerousness, by continually adding them up, they have a compounding accumulative power. Because remember, as it says, sand is weighty. And sin is sin. And whether a person leaps off a cliff or gradually slides down a cliff, both of those two individuals find themselves at the bottom of that particular gorge, don't they? And too often, when we stop and we take inventory of our lives, we look for the big things. And I don't have any big things in my life, so I'm probably doing okay. I would suggest to you, and I think the word of wisdom that this little phrase here about a sand is weighty is suggesting to us is that you and I would be just as better, just as well served or better served if we start taking inventory of the small things in our lives. Because those small things that seem insignificant, they add up. Parallel idea to this, Andrew Carnegie uh, had a, uh, a phrase. He was one of those barons of the 1800s and steel and all those things. And he had a phrase that he quoted. He didn't come up with it, but he quoted it a lot. He said, look after the pennies or the pence, and the pounds will look after themselves. So for us, it might be look after the pennies and the, the dollar bills will, uh, will look after themselves. Now, here's a man that had accumulated $400 million in his lifetime. In 1880, $400 million. That's a lot more than that today, certainly so. And yet he was still repeating this mantra about worrying about the, the little things, the pennies. And so for my family and my wife and I, and me in particular as I do the banking and things like that, if you figure out where the pennies are going for, you're going to have the resources you need, the dollar bills, so to speak. And I think it's the same thing in our walks with the Lord, in our lives. And the little sins that we allow to accumulate, they add up and they become big sins, so to speak. And so a stone weighs the same amount as a bag of sand. All right? Make sense? Okay. You guys aren't that impressed by that. I thought it was really good as I was putting it together. It, it spoke to my heart. Anyhow, verse 4. Wrath is cruel. 
Anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Who can stand before jealousy? Now, we've already considered the danger of provoking a fool that's given to wrath. So we know that uh, wrath is something that is dangerous here. Here, what we see is that even more dangerous than wrath and anger is when you have to deal with a person that is embroiled with jealousy. And so wrath and anger, they're cruel, they're overwhelming, but those things tend to be short-lived. A person finally kind of comes down and they're no longer furious at you and then you can kind of interact with that particular person, however. But jealousy, that has a tendency to just continually gnaw away at a person. And many times it doesn't even show itself on the person's face and things like that. And most of us know that we should guard ourselves against allowing anger to take root in our lives or allowing wrath to enter in and affect our actions. Well, we should take just as much caution, if not more, with jealousy, with those attitudes of jealousy, thanks Rich, and envy. Because according to this passage, jealousy and envy are just as destructive. Alrighty, so I know we guard ourselves against outburst of wrath and giving ourselves to anger. We need to guard ourselves from giving into the hard attitude of jealousy and envy as well. Verse five and six, Solomon says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You remember when Judas designated who Jesus was with a kiss? That word there for kiss means it's not just a peck on the cheek. It means an intimate kiss. And, and the idea would be sort of it lingered on his cheek as he kissed him. It, it's the kiss that a friend would give to another. And that's what Judas did. And yet Ju- Judas was the enemy of Jesus. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And as he says here, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Matthew Henry said this, the physician's care is to cure the patient's disease, not to please his palate. And just because somebody's words hurt does not mean that they are being hurtful or that their words are hurtful. That's a big difference. And just because someone's words hurt does not mean they are seeking to hurt you. Those words are designed for your good and not for your ill. And it's the people who love us the most that will both encourage us, but also when need be, they'll rebuke us. And they'll do so in love because they care enough about us to point out areas of our weakness. I don't know anyone who loves or likes even being rebuked. I can't imagine there's anybody who's like, that's awesome, thanks man, you know, whatever. Now, as we grow in maturity, we deal with it, but none of us readily uh, embrace it. Like, this is going to be awesome. Go ahead and give me what you got. And we are inherently inclined to resist that rebuke. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to conclude that if our friends really loved us, they would leave us to our shortcomings. If you really loved me, you would ignore my shortcomings, and you would never bring a rebuke against me. We mistakenly draw that particular conclusion that those that are seeking to speak truth into our lives do so because they want to be mean to us or they're seeking to hurt us or because they're not really our friends. And what Solomon shows us here is the complete opposite of that is true. Those that ignore your shortcomings 
and won't speak into your life aren't really your friends. It's your friends that deal with the potential conflict by finally saying, look, I spent some time praying about this and I want to speak this. I think the Lord would have this for you. Would you receive it and pray about it? Your friends go through that trouble. It's your enemies who don't bother or those who don't really care about you that don't bother. The highest love will express itself, in this instance, the higher love, will express itself in rebuke when the object upon which the rebuke is coming needs to be corrected. And faithful are the reproofs of a friend. And though at present those rebukes may be painful. It may hurt a bit. Now let's just say this here. This doesn't mean it's our job to run around and correct all the mistakes of our friends. Because if we start doing that to one another, we're not going to be friends very long. That gets pretty annoying when everyone comes around correcting one another time after time. But there does come a time, and I think many of us know what it is, there comes a time when truth needs to be spoken. And a true friend, lovingly, prayerfully, and with the other person's good in mind. So if my correction to you is because you annoy me, and I don't want to be annoyed anymore, then that's not your good in mind. Does that make sense? That's my good in mind. I don't want to be annoyed anymore. But your good in mind would be, you know what, this is damaging your relationships with me and with other people, and so I want to speak this truth into your life. Lovingly, prayerfully, and with the other person's good in mind, you bring that rebuke. Now, I've been looking at it from the perspective of receiving the rebuke. All right, so faithful are the wounds of a friend. Hey, thanks for sharing that with me. But from the perspective of the one that has to go share the rebuke, that's not always easy or comfortable to do either. That's a hard thing to do. I'd rather, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to bother anyone. You know what? To each their own, all these sorts of things. The easier thing to do is to just walk away or to sing the person's praises, give them kisses profusely, and then they get out of there and have nothing more to do with them. Does that really sound like the Lord would have for your relationship with that person? Your friend? Richie said no. Okay, Richie knows. It's your concern us. The rest of us don't. But my buddy Richie does here. If a true, it's a true friend who's willing to risk your goodwill in order to help you with constructive criticism. So if you have friends who occasionally, quote, wound you, treasure those friends. Because if you ignore their constructive criticism or you respond back with harshness, you run the risk of them stopping uh, speaking into your life truth or just running away from you altogether to have nothing to do with you. And that certainly will not be for your benefit, okay? Make sense? Verse 7, one who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is, is sweet. You recall in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were coming out of slavery, remember that, they were coming out of slavery and they were beginning to wander through the desert, no permanent place that was their own, certainly no fields that they were cultivating and things like that. As they wandered through the desert, they became hungry. And the Lord miraculously provided for the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 16, it tells us that the Lord provided manna from heaven. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was a substance that they could eat, a bread-like substance that they could partake in, and it would provide for the needs. And the people, Exodus chapter 16, delighted. 
The Lord is so good. He's amazing. We're having a prayer meeting tonight to give him praise for his provision. This manna stuff is fantastic. They thought the manna was so awesome, they even began to break the rules that God established about collecting the manna. And so he said to them, get enough for today, and that's all you get. But it was so good, and who knows, it'll be here tomorrow. Let's just get a whole bunch, and then it would go bad, and they would violate the rules about the Sabbath, all those things. But these were a hungry people, and God's provision for them, any provision really, would be considered sweet to them. And it's exactly what the manna was to them. Now, you keep reading through the book, uh, the books of uh, Moses, and you come to the book of Numbers. And so this is a number of years later, when the people had been daily filled and satisfied with the manna, and suddenly, you read the passage, suddenly the manna from heaven that they previously called praise meetings for, I made that up, but you get the idea, that they previously rejoiced in so much, now that manna had become loathsome to them. Here's the words of those people. It said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing except that I was a slave every day and got whipped on the back and, you know, they threw a couple of fish in front of me, but they forgot about that. Oh, the cucumbers. Now you know there's something wrong with these people, that they're delighted about cucumbers. The melons, the leeks, the onions, ah, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. Now listen to the disdain in this phrase, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Remember before? Oh, Lord, you're amazing. You provided manna from heaven. And now it's just this manna. It's like, yeah, like it's dripping from their mouths. They're despising the Lord. If you've got nothing, anything you are given will be considered the sweetest morsel. But if, on the other hand, you're full and you don't really have need of anything, well, then you can be pretty picky and you can become pretty choosy. And so the challenge then in our hearts is to nurture in our hearts this attitude of thankfulness, an attitude of gratitude, if you will, an attitude of thankfulness, to truly be thankful in all things, to take on the attitude. You remember the Apostle Paul who was sort of describing his experiences, his ministry, uh, his mission experiences. The Apostle Paul said, I know, and the implication is I've learned, both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And Paul discovered in his own walk how to be abounding and have all that he needs and still be thankful, and how to be abased and lacking and cry out to the Lord and to be thankful. I'm a pretty picky eater. You probably wouldn't realize that as you look at me, but I am a pretty picky eater. And sadly, even the thought, like thinking about consuming certain foods sometimes turns my stomach. So if you want me to eat it, I may get sick here. You still want me to eat this, particularly on mission trips and things like that. And so it's just something that goes on in my mind, and I should probably see a psychologist about it or something, and they could get me through it, I'm sure. And so then, unless I'm super hungry and I know that nothing else is coming, I won't eat that particular food. But you're going to offend them and their culture. They're going to have to live with that, all right? <laughs> because I've come a long way, and I don't want to throw up on their nice little hut here, okay? Which is what's going to happen. And so unless I'm super hungry and know that something is coming. Now, if, if I know nothing else is coming and this is it, 
then, all right, Lord, help me. You're going to have to help me. And usually I have like Twizzlers hiding in my bag. Alrighty, and, and so I make it through. Somehow there, somehow I make it through. Now, my thinking changes with my level of need. And it's my need, nothing else is coming, that gives uh, appetite and enjoyment for what otherwise would be despised by me. Again, enjoyment is probably a loose term here. But I'll eat it if I know there's nothing else. Needs gives rise to, need, I should say, gives rise to, ap- uh, rise to appetite. And that's true certainly in my life, at least, of food. But I think this is also true of spiritual things as well. And perhaps you do as well. I think many believers that have been in the Lord for a while and have had a lot of access to the Word of God and things like that and teaching of the Word of God, sometimes the Word of God becomes one of those bitter things that people come to loathe. Fellowship sometimes becomes something that old-time believers begin to loathe. Prayer becomes something we're so familiar with. I have so much of it. I've done it for so long that we even begin to loathe it as well. And here are these folks, believers. We've been around a long time, and we've been consumed in many ways by these things, and so now we've grown tired of those particular things. Now compare that attitude with the attitude of a new believer that can't get enough of God's word. And they're reading these things and God is communicating to them as he's given them the Holy Spirit and they begin to devour the word of God. You compare that with stories you've seen or videos perhaps you've seen online of those that are clamoring for even pages of the word of God. Because in their little village or community they've never had the word of God before. And so people are sharing here. I just finished these three pages from 1 John, and they're sharing that with this person, and people are clamoring for it. We see, you see videos of, of people bringing a suitcase of Bibles put into the language of the people of a particular community, and people chasing after and rushing after the, the Bibles. I got to get one. And, I, you know, I'm sorry if I step on your kid's hand. I got to get one. You know what I mean? And, and everybody relax. You know, we'll get another one for you. But, but the point is, do you chase after your Bible in such a way? Christ- no, I'm just kidding. No, no, we don't. Because in many ways, we're so familiar with it. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'll get to it if I can get to it. Think about the members of the persecuted church around the world who will literally risk death to gather together with the saints in some secret place because they value fellowship that much, Right? And so it's something that they don't have, it's not as prevalent in their life, and so it's sweeter than honey to them. It's need that gives appetite to enjoyment. Now you say, okay, well, I have been a believer for a long time, and I got 10 Bibles scattered throughout my house. I guess I don't really have a need. Is this how it's going to be the rest of my walk? No. It all goes back to your spiritual need. The reason a young believer is devouring the word of God is because their spiritual needs are being revealed and met in Jesus Christ. And they're discovering that for the first time. And so if you find the word of God has become dull in your life, remind yourself again and ask the Lord to remind you again of your great spiritual need that you have. You ask him, you go to him in prayer. Now he said he's going to answer prayers according to his will. And I'm going to share with you a little prayer. You tell me if this is according to your will. You ask the Lord to break your heart once more. Is that something according to his will? It is. I'll answer it for you. You ask him to open your heart to your great need for him. 
You ask him to soften those areas that habit has hardened. And then you ask him to take those things that you have grown to loathe and make them once again as sweet as honey. Those are prayers that the Lord will answer. And in the sincerity of your heart, you lift those prayers up to him and he, can, he will answer, or he wants to answer and he can answer those prayers. And he can revive us, every one of us here. Some of us need to be revived, quite frankly, this morning. And we're going through the motions of our spirituality. He can revive you once again. And he can do that this morning. And so you come to him in sincerity of prayer and he'll do that in your life. Verse 8 says, like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Sad commentary. I will say this, both men and women can stray for their home, from their home, and they can do so for various reasons and to fulfill a variety of different longings. Some people stray because they get distracted, and something shinier catches their attention, and so they wander from their home off after that shinier thing. Some people stray because they've allowed themselves to get bored in their relationship. They've neglected to use Solomon's term, their nest. And so now they seek stimulation somewhere else. Some people stray for senses of adventure and exhilaration and forbidden love or, or what have you. And so people stray for a variety of reasons. And there's a variety of things people stray into. And so perhaps in your mind, you're picturing that they stray into uh, an adulterous affair or something like that. Not necessarily. Some people stray and seek satisfaction in their job. And so, yeah, they come home every night and, you know, they pay the bills and they sit and they have, maybe they have dinner with their family, but their heart is somewhere else. Their heart is in their job or in their activities or in their hobbies or things like that. Some certainly stray after other men and women that are not their own, what the Bible calls a foreign woman, a woman that is not your own and who should be foreign to you. And some people, they stray all the while while sitting glued to their couch with remote in hand. And they're no longer really engaged in, with the heart of the bride of their youth or the groom, if you will, of their youth or even their children or anything like that. And they stray. So people stray for a variety of reasons. And I imagine those, many of us, maybe we're not straying into adulterous affairs, but some of those other things may hit home. And the Lord would have us not do that, okay? The nest, as he refers to it there, that's meant to be the place of safety. The nest for that bird is the place of peace. It's the place of rest. And all of those things are sacrificed when a person, like a bird from its nest, strays from his or her home. And too many men and increasingly too many women, they lose sight of the peace and safety and rest that is theirs at present, and they put all of that at risk at best, and they sacrifice all of that at worst because they have allowed their hearts and their minds and even their very selves to stray from that which is theirs. And Solomon knows what he's talking about because sadly Solomon is a guy that allowed himself to do just that. And he discovered the pain and the heartache and the difficulty that that decision and those decisions caused him and others. And so he exhorts his son 
don't make the same mistake that I have made. And you may recall from earlier in the book of Proverbs, he was very clear with his son on this particular sin of straying from the wife of his youth. And he said this, it's lengthy, I'm going to read it to you. He said, drink water from your own cistern, son, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, a foreign woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Very clear, isn't it? Like a wandering bird that sort of jumps from branch to branch but never truly finds a place to rest is the man or the woman that strays in search of other forms of stimulation or satisfaction. And both that bird and that man, when they do that, they make themselves easy prey for the predators. Remember, we know that our enemy is like that roaring lion seeking to devour. And we make ourselves easy prey when we stray from our place of rest and peace and safety. And we see here in Solomon's proverb, chapter 5 proverb, that they set, these people set themselves up for destruction. And so let me just throw it out there. Have you been wandering? Physically, certainly so. If you have, stop. Stop immediately. But emotionally, mentally, have you been wandering, drifting from your place of rest? Shake yourself out. Come to your senses. Shake yourself out of that stupor, really, and face the reality of the danger that you're placing yourself in. And frankly, return to the Lord by confessing what you've been doing as sin. And come back with your whole heart, not only to the Lord, but to your wife or to your husband. Prepare to give them once again your full devotion. That's what you pledge to do. That's what you need to do. Verse 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Now we saw earlier that a true friend will love us even when time may come where they need to confront us. And even if that confrontation is somewhat painful, they'll do it because they do it for our good. And here we see a similar idea, both leading to the same conclusion. We need to value the importance of friendship in our lives. We need to value the importance of friendship in our lives, whether that be a near friend, as it says there in verse 10, or an old friend, as it talks about earlier on in that same verse. Those individuals, those friends, are valuable resources in our lives because they love us, and the fact that they've been around a long time, they're an old friend, they have proven that they love us. And so we need to embrace their care and look to reciprocate that care as, an opportunity, as opportunity will allow. 
And so your takeaway from verses here, put them all together here, but particularly 9 and 10, nurture and cultivate your friendships for your good and for the good of others. It's a, it's, this is a word that is important for me uh, to hear. Some of you may be less so, but some of us more so. We need to nurture and cultivate those relationships. Verse 11, it says, Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. I said this earlier, in the normal order of things, no one loves you, cares for you, or wants better for you than your mom or dad. In the normal order of things. And so young men, young women, reciprocate that love by honoring your mom, honoring your dad, and giving no cause for reproach against them. Verse 12, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Those words, word for word, were quoted back in chapter 22. 22.3 says, again, word for word, the same thing. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Now, for whatever reason, the men of Hezekiah felt that the message needed to be repeated, and so they, re- they do so word for word here in chapter 27. I would say to you, it's a message that bears being repeated. If you see danger, avoid danger. That's the message. If you see danger, avoid danger. You don't play with danger. You don't get as close to it as you can. You avoid it. If you see it, it says here, hide yourself from it, lest you continue to move toward it and suffer for doing so. Again, to quote Matthew Henry, he said this, if we venture upon the evil of sin, there will follow the evil of punishment. God, in his kindness and mercy, has made us aware of that coming judgment. As Henry went on to add, God warns before he wounds, he says. And he does. He warns before he wounds, and he invites us to hide ourselves in him for our good from the danger. There's that old wonderful hymn, you know it perhaps, Rock of Ages. It was written in the 1700s. And the opening verse, we're going to sing it actually to close out our time together, but the opening verse says this, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, Let me hide myself in thee. A cleft is a break in the rock. And so if you have a mountain of sorts, that break in the rock might even be something you can crawl up into to protect yourself. So he says, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin to double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. It doesn't really rhyme, but that's okay. And this whole book of Proverbs is designed to protect us from the danger that God knows will cause us harm. That's what the whole purpose of this book is, that we would walk in wisdom and be protected from the dangers of folly. And the Lord invites us to see the danger and to hide us from the danger in him. Amen? In him. Nurture your relationship with Christ and the intimacy of your fellowship with him. Hear his voice. Let him speak into the deep places of your heart and walk in the way that he directs, and you will experience blessing. That's the design of this book for our lives here. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.